0: Well, again, good to uh, see everyone who is here and able to be present. Good to be seen by those of you online. Um, I am not preaching, as the email that I sent out the other day indicated. I am not preaching today. I've been looking forward to this day. Uh, Pastor John Soper is with us. Uh, For those of you who don't know John Soper, uh, he has... uh, Man, to, to give him a, a proper introduction, I'm, I'm, I'm going to fail at it, but I do want to read a bio from um, a website. Mission 119 is a Bible study tool that some of you guys have used, um, that John has put together and he's the creator of, but here's the bio on that. Pastor Soper is a man on mission. For the past 45 years, he has served as a church planner, pastor, missionary, professor, district superintendent, and vice president for church ministries in the Christian and Missionary Alliance. In all of these roles, however, the mission has remained constant, to equip others to know the word. This passion is perhaps best expressed in the words of one of his core values, knowing and obeying God's God's word is fundamental to all true success. In 2017, he retired from his pastoral role at Ridgeway Alliance Church in White Plains, New York. He continues to serve as a consultant for leadership development in the Metropolitan District of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. John Soper, uh, two uh, two years ago with his wife Mimi, started a coaching cohort that my wife and I have been blessed to be a part of, so we've been able to get to know them more, Uh, and then in the last year and a half, he took on more of a mentor role with myself. Uh, So um, I've been blessed, John, so good to have you here, Um, and so I've been praying for all of you guys, that God would just speak to you guys through John, I am confident that he will, Uh, so at that, John, thank you.
1: Good evening, True Life. And if any Mission 119 people in here, in that case, good morning, this is Pastor Soper, but but, uh, they'll understand. Hey, I've been looking forward to being with you for really almost two years now, since Chris and I first started to talk about it, then COVID got in the way. But we've been praying for your congregation, and I want to tell you that sitting here tonight and worshiping with you uh, took me back to some of the very best days of the last 50 years of my ministry because the most fun I've ever had in ministry was when I was planting new churches. And so whenever I get to come to a a, a relatively new church that's still getting going and and seeing people come to know Jesus and expanding the kingdom and with vision, the kind of vision that Chris was just talking about, I get charged up. And this is just a great experience tonight. And uh, I want to thank you for giving me this opportunity. And I'd be charged up even if my Eagles didn't win this afternoon, but they did. Because, see, I'm a South Jersey guy. I grew up in South Jersey, so I uh, kind of always have allegiances that way. Hey, turn with me in your Bibles if you go to Exodus chapter 4. And we're going to drop into the middle of a conversation that this guy named Moses is having with God. And he's standing in front of a burning bush. And he's actually talking to God, and God is uh, calling him to do something. And we're going to drop right into the middle of the conversation, okay? Exodus chapter 4, we're going to look at the first 20 verses together. And Moses answered, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say the Lord didn't appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous, like snow. Now, put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored, like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they don't believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they might believe the second. But if they don't believe these two signs or listen to you, then take some water from the Nile, pour it on dry ground, and the water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or dumb? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will help you speak, and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Oh Lord, please send somebody else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. He said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He'll speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can form miraculous signs with it. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt and see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you were dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. Father, help us tonight as we come before your word. We're here because we want you to speak. We want you to speak to us. And we promise that if we hear your voice tonight, we're gonna respond and we're gonna obey and do whatever you tell us to do. So Lord, speak because we, your servants, are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. A long time ago, there was a guy who came to know Jesus in England, actually in, in Cornwall, in England. His name was Billy Bray. He, he was a pretty uneducated fellow. He was a miner by profession, a tin miner actually. And um, he just met Jesus and everything changed in his life. And he wanted to do something to, to make up for all the time that he'd spent as a, as a servant of sin He wanted to serve God, but he had this huge problem. You see, he didn't think there was anything he could do for God. He didn't have much education. He was poor. There really were only two things he knew how to do pretty well. He could cut stone and he could fight and brawl with the best of them. But he wasn't sure how you could use either of those two things for God. And so, he thought about it a lot, but he just couldn't get past that. How could God make use of me? What could I ever do for God? Ever felt that way? I think a lot of us have. Like you really would like to do something big for God, to serve Him, to, to build His kingdom, but you didn't know what you could do because you're too ordinary you're too plain, you don't have anything important to offer them? Well, if you can relate to that feeling, and, and I sure can, I'll give you a hint to a secret. This is the passage of scripture God used to call me to the ministry 40, 50 years ago, uh, almost 40, 49 years ago. So it's pretty special to me. But, but if you can relate to that question, then I, I need to introduce you to somebody tonight. This guy's name is Moses, and he's not who you think he is. He's actually the most ordinary person you could ever possibly imagine. Moses. What do you think about when you hear that name? You know, I I grew up in church, and so I went to Sunday school as a kid. I didn't come to know Jesus until much, much later, until I was in grad school. But I did grow up in church, and so I went to Sunday school a lot, and I heard all the stories. So if you grew up in church, or you grew up in a Christian family with Bible stories, and when you, or, or maybe if you just watch Disney a lot, but when, when, when you hear the name Moses, first thing jumps into your brain is, is this basket floating down the river, right? With a little baby in it. A- and a princess discovers the baby and takes him home to the palace. And he grows up as a prince of Egypt in the palace of the king. Now, I gotta be honest with you tonight. I don't relate really well to that Moses, Cause see, I really don't know anything about palaces. I I did visit a palace just once when I was in Paris. I went to Versailles, but it was kind of so over the top. I want. I couldn't. Couldn't wait to get out. I don't relate to palaces. And, strange as it may seem, nobody's ever mistaken me for a prince. Maybe a frog, but not a prince. Right. So. I have a hard time relating that, Moses. Now, if. You have a different picture in your brain. It might. It might be the picture of. Moses, the mighty man of God, the miracle worker, right? The guy who stood in front of the king of Egypt and said, let my people go, performed all those miracles that that brought the nation of Egypt to its knees and let the children of Israel go. And then later on, he's standing on the side of a mountain with the tables of the law in his hand. If you watch a lot of old movies, he looks a little like Charlton Heston. Um, And... uh, His face is glowing because he's been in the presence with God. He's able to command millions of people and they listen because they know that he hears the voice of God and, and they're gonna follow him anywhere. Well, I have trouble relating to that Moses too. Because, well, I'm not particularly known for doing miracles. In fact, I can't do miracles. And, uh, you know, I don't think of myself as a mighty man of God. And the only time my face ever glows like that is when I've been out in the sun way too long. So that Moses doesn't make it for me either. But you see, the guy that's standing in front of this bush that's burning and having this conversation with God, he's not either one of those two guys. The guy who's standing in front of that bush is the most ordinary old man you could ever possibly imagine. He's an 80-year-old shepherd. And if you can picture the scene in in your mind's eye, you, you know he's nothing special. Look at his clothes. They're the old, patched, worn clothes of a shepherd. Dusty, sandy, dirty. Look at his face. His face is, uh, he's got one of those faces like you have, since we're in South Jersey, I'll put it in our terms, like like the guy who's been a lifeguard for 40 years. Leather, deep lines, just etched by the sun, baked by the sun. That's the picture. Okay. He's not wealthy. He's not important. If you're wealthy and you're 80 years old, let me tell you something. You're not taking care of your own sheep. You hire somebody else to do that. Abraham had people to do that. You know, he was he was he was rich. But this isn't Abraham, this is Moses. And he's poor. And they're not, they don't even his sheep. They're the sheep that belong to his father-in-law. See, if you listen to the conversation that's going on between him and God, the one we just read, nothing special about that. There's no eloquence. This guy probably speaks three different languages. He speaks the language of the Egyptians, that's where he was raised. He speaks the language of the Israelites. That's who he came from. And that's what he was. And he speaks the language of the Midianites. That's who he lives with now. But quite frankly, he's not comfortable in any of them. And most of the time, the only people he talks to are sheep. And there's no confidence. Not in this guy. That's of the conversation's going on with God. He's doing everything he can to deflect. I can't do this. Get somebody else. I'm not eloquent. I'm not adequate. I'll be honest, that's not the Moses you were thinking about when I said no name, is it? But this isn't the prince of Egypt. This isn't the mighty man of God. See, See, Moses' life... It's divided into three pretty equal stages. He spends his first 40 years as a prince of Egypt. All of the wealth of the palace, all of the best education the world can give him, all of the leadership training, you know, all the perks, got them all. Then at the age of 40, there's this nasty incident where he actually kills an overseer and and the uh, Pharaoh of Egypt, who probably never wanted them there in the first place has a great excuse and he puts a death sentence on him and he's banished, he's gone. He spends the next 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness. And this is where we catch him at the very end of that 40 years. And then the last 40 years, he's the mighty man of God. He becomes the mighty man of God. So think about this with me for a second. If you were God thank god you're not but if you were god or if i was god which one of those three moseses would you pick to lead the people out of egypt see my first inclination would be to go for stage 1 because he's already got the connections he already has the power he already has the authority he's a natural he's got the diplomatic connections He's got it all going. People are used to following him. God doesn't choose that that stage one Moses. Now, if I was really thinking, I'd probably say, no, no, I'm not gonna go for that one. I'm gonna take the stage three Moses. The Moses who's learned to listen to the voice of God and to be on such close terms with God and to be so obedient to God that the power of God flows through him and the presence of God is written all over him. That's the guy I want. But God doesn't choose a stage three Moses. The Moses God picks to do this incredible job, lead the people out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, and establish the nation of Israel, is a stage two Moses. Most ordinary person you could possibly imagine. Wow. Technology doesn't like me. I learned to live with that fact many years ago. Okay? Yeah, it was kind of like I had my head in a a shell, a seashell. So, what's the the point? Why is it important to us tonight? Well, I I think it's important because I, I want you to realize this. God likes to use ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary things. See... I think a lot of Christians are living under a terrible satanic delusion. And they have come somehow to believe that God doesn't use ordinary people. That God only uses converted Egyptian princes. Or miracle working apostles who don't know the meaning of the word fear and are well beyond the pool of the kinds of temptations that we struggle with all the time. When they read the Bible and they encounter a Moses or a David or a Peter or a Mary, uh, they, they think that God only uses special people. And they're wrong. See, most Christians have concluded that they're too ordinary for God to want to use them. They think they're too young or they're too old or they're too weak or they're too damaged or they're too uneducated or they're too common or they're too stupid for God to use them. Brothers and sisters, hear me. God has no unimportant servants there's nobody who's too ordinary for him to use. In in fact, from Genesis to Revelation, those are the very people he is most often pleased to use. He uses the young. How many people know the story of Samuel? Little kid growing up in the temple. And and he hears his voice in the night, Samuel, 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 he thinks it's Eli the priest, but it isn't, it's God. He's calling this little kid, maybe eight, nine years old. He said, I don't want to use you. He uses old people, people as old as me. Or even older. I love the story of Caleb. When they get into their promised land, Joshua, who now is leading the people of Israel, calls Caleb and says, You get to choose your inheritance first. And Caleb says, I'll take that mountain over there, the one we haven't conquered yet. The one where the giants live. give me that one. God uses weak people. Everybody knows the story of David and Goliath, right? He uses people who are socially unimportant. I, I marvel every time I think about the fact that the very first witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that's a pretty important role in history, you know? You know who was? A woman who was probably a converted prostitute. That's God chose to use. To deliver the message that Jesus was alive. That's amazing. He uses common people. He uses people with terrible sins in their past. He uses David after that mess with Bathsheba. After he's repented of it. He uses uneducated. God can even use stupid things. Sorry. You know, know, I figure if God could speak through Balaam's donkey, he might even be able to use me. See, when you read through the roll call of faith in the Bible, it kind of reads like a litany of ordinariness. Ordinary people that God uses in extraordinary ways to accomplish his purpose. And, And the reason is really clear. Uh, There's this verse right at the end, these verses right at the end of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, where it says that, uh, there it is, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong, the lowly things and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And then he goes on to say why. So that no flesh should glory in his presence. So when all is said and done and the world sees what God has done, they can't say it was because he used those really rich people, those really powerful people, those extremely gifted and talented people like Pastor Chris. No. The only possible explanation at the end of the day, is that God did this thing. And he did it. That's why God likes to use ordinary people. Now, how does that make you feel tonight? I think that it ought to make us pretty excited. Because most of the things that you thought were disqualifiers, reasons why God probably wouldn't ever want to use you, they're not. God can use you. In fact, I can go way beyond that and without any fear of contradiction, I can tell you on the basis of what the scripture says that God wants to use you. He wants to use you. He wants to use us. So that when all is said and done and South Jersey has once again experienced another great revival. You know, some of the greatest revivals in the history of America went right through this area. Uh, the Great Awakening back in the 1730s, the Second Great Awakening in the 1840s, they, they, they started in the metropolitan New York, New Jersey area. Uh, and, and I really believe that the next one's going to start and work through this area as well. And when that happens, the world's gonna look and say, well, it wasn't because the people of true life were so fa- fabulous, so fantastic, so talented, or so wealthy, it was because God did amazing things. And he used those people. And that's what's gonna happen. It ought to encourage you. It ought to fill you with excitement. Probably it ought to also fill you with a little bit of sobriety because, see, God likes to use clean instruments. A number of years ago, I was, uh, I was working from my office in Newark and I was visiting the churches in this region and my car was in the shop so I borrowed one of the other guy's cars who also worked in my office. And, and I went out and he forgot, he gave me his keys, but, but he forgot to tell me that the uh, cushion on the driver's side door handle, was uh, the, the rubber had come off it, so there was just the metal plate there. And he didn't tell me that. So I get in the car, and I go to pull the door sharp, and I just you know push my hand down real hard, and that sucker was sharp. It cut me right to the bone. So instead of going to the church I was gonna visit, I ended up going to the, you know the, the emergent care place. And, and when I went in, it was like a war zone in that place. I don't know what had happened that day, but it was in nork so <laughs> who knows? Uh, and and w- when I when I got into the the, the room with the ser- the guy who was going to sew my finger back up, man, there's there's medical equipment everywhere. There's there's bloody bandages. There there are tools that have been used to sew somebody else up, and and, and so I I watched really carefully. I, I made sure that guy got a clean. Package of instruments that have been properly sterilized, and because uh, nobody's going to work on me with a with a, with a dirty needle, right? Uh, well, God likes to use clean instruments. God wants to use us, but we need to be clean, uh, and then He will use us in amazing ways. So that brings me to the really big question for the night: the, the uh, used to be the $64,000 question, but you've got to be as old as me to remember that. So let's make it the million-dollar question, all right? Inflation. God wants to use me, but how could God use me? How could God use me? That's the big question, right? We've got to answer that tonight. Well, this story answers it. And the answer's in this conversation that Moses has with God. And... Uh, God says to Moses, I got a job for you to do. What do you want me to do? This is back in chapter three. I want you to go to Egypt. Egypt. What do you want me to do? And I think the beads of perspiration are starting to show up on Moses' forehead right away. Because remember the last time he was in Egypt, it was 40 years ago. He was banished, exiled with a death sentence on his head. You come back here, you die. God has already told him that the people who wanted them dead, are, are, they're, they're dead. And so it's probably safe to go back, but I'm sure Moses is still a little cautious. I would be, right? And, and then God, Moses says, God, what do you want me to do? I want you to go see Pharaoh. What? Blood pressure just went up 20 points. Uh, what would I say to Pharaoh? Tell him to let my people go. <laughs> Definitely the arrhythmia. <laughs> in Moses' heartbeat now. Stress is really coming out. And and now Moses' true level of faith shows up. Well God, what do I say when they won't believe me? What do I say when they don't believe me? And God says, Moses, what's that in your hand? My staff, what about it? Throw it down. Moses throws the staff down on the ground and immediately retreats about 10 paces because it turns into a snake. And then God says, pick it up. Now, good shepherds are not exactly afraid of snakes, but they do have a healthy respect for them. So I can imagine Moses very carefully (laughs) reaches down and he grabs the tail of that snake and it turns back into a stick. And God says, when they question you, just do that. Just do that. Can you imagine Moses about two hours later, after the the, the conversation's ended, the bush isn't burning anymore. I I, I imagine this. I, I can't prove it. I think Moses is sitting on a rock. He's not very far away. He's still looking at that bush. And he's desperately trying to decide whether God has really spoken to him or whether the desert sun has finally done its work and he's stark raving mad. <laughs> and I can imagine him throwing his staff down again and nothing happens. Why should it? It's just a stick. He can remember the day 20 years before when he pulled it off the dead almond tree. But what a history that stick is about to have. Man, if you know the story of the Exodus, you'll know that, uh, well, I won't spoil the story. It has an amazing future. Because the whole secret to this whole story and to everything else that happens in Moses' life for the rest of Moses' life is in verse 20. Verse 20 says this. After he went back to see his father-in-law Jethro... Jethro said, yeah, go back to Egypt if you want. Take my wife, your wife, and my, my grandkids with you. You can go. It says Moses went back to Egypt, put his wife and kids on a donkey, and then it says, and he took the staff of God in his hand. And here's the secret. There was a moment in time when the stick... The staff, the rod, call it whatever you want, that belonged to Moses became the rod that belonged to God. And what a difference that made. It changed everything. A couple of weeks later, Moses is standing before the Pharaoh of Egypt. (laughs) Aaron's with him. Aaron happens to be holding the staff now. And the king says, just like Moses said he would, why should I believe you? Moses looks at Aaron. Aaron looks at Moses. Moses says, do it now. Aaron throws the stick down. And it becomes a snake. Pharaoh's not overly impressed. He's got some magicians in his court. These guys were in commune with demons, I know. And they could perform You know, the devil can perform miracles too. And so they throw their, their staves down and, and, and they turn into snakes too. But then something rather dramatic happens. Moses' snake eats all of their snakes. Should have been a message there for Pharaoh. He should have got it, but he didn't. And then it's on. A little later, a week later, Moses is standing by the the, the Nile River and Pharaoh has refused again to let the people go. And the word of the Lord came to Moses, his servant, saying, this is chapter 6, stretch forth your arm with your staff. So Moses stretches forth his arm with the staff of God and the Nile River turns to blood. And then one after another, 10 times, the gods of Egypt, all of the plagues that Moses brought against Egypt were directed against some god that Egypt worshiped. And one by one, each of these Egyptian false gods gets judged by the rod of God. It's a rod of judgment. Finally, after the last plague, and if you don't know the story, you gotta go back and read it. It's a great story or if you must, watch Prince of Egypt, but please know that Disney took liberties with the story. Uh, finally, the Pharaoh says, okay, can't take it anymore. The country's been devastated. Go, take your people, get out of here. And so Moses leads the people of Israel out of slavery and they are right to the Red Sea And Pharaoh changes his mind, sends an army after him. Now they're trapped. The Red Sea's in front of them. There are mountains here, there are mountains there. And if you turn around and look behind you, all you can see is a cloud of dust being raised by the chariots of Egypt coming to to kill them. And Moses says, God, what do I do? He gets down on his face and he prays, he says, God, what do I do? This is one of the very, very few times in scripture where God tells somebody to stop praying. God says, get up off your face. (laughs) Stretch out your arm with your staff. And the staff of God becomes a staff of deliverance. The Red Sea parts. And they go across on dry land. And the sea closes on the Egyptian army, and they're not there anymore. Although I understand that archaeologists have found a lot of Egyptian chariots at a particular point on the bottom of the Red Sea recently, very recently. Uh, then that the story of that staff continues. They're out of water in the wilderness. God says to Moses, "Hit the rock." Moses hits the rock. Water comes out, enough water to 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 feed and assuage to, to to assuage the thirst of two million people and all their flocks. And on and on and on it goes. And finally, that that staff of Moses, the staff that now belongs to God, ends up in the Ark of the Covenant because it's budded, this dead, dead stick is now alive and budded because it was another way that, that God showed Moses' authority when it was questioned. It's an Amazing story. So what do we make of all of that? Well, see I think there's a pattern here and it patterns all through scripture and the patterns all through history it's always been the same god loves taking ordinary things that belong to ordinary people and using them in extraordinary ways because the people have given what they have to god by the way one of the core values of the christian missionary alliance its core value number 3 everything we have belongs to god we are only stewards Anyhow, it's that way. There was a day when the slingshot that belonged to a shepherd boy named David became the slingshot that belonged to God. And what a difference it made. There was a day when a little bottle of oil that belonged to an unnamed widow woman in Zarephath became God's little bottle of oil, and it never ran out again. There was a small boy who only had a loaf of a couple of, uh, five loaves of bread and a couple of, uh, of fish at, at a meeting that Jesus was at one day with 5,000 people. But the little boy gave that lunch to Jesus. God blessed it and made it enough to feed a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children. There was a woman, a widow woman living in Joppa in the days of the apostles in the book of Acts. Her name is Dorcas, and she died. And the only thing we know about it is that she was a seamstress and that she sewed things for poor people. But God sent Peter to Joppa to raise Dorcas from the dead. Turns out she was probably the most significant Christian in that place. All she had in her hand, in her hand was a, a, a sewing needle, but it was God's sewing needle. It's been that all the way. It's been that way all through history. All through history. A Guy named George Mueller only had two shillings in his pocket when God said to him in Bristol, England, back in the 1830s, look at all these orphans, hundreds, thousands of orphans, made orphans by the Industrial Revolution, living without homes, homeless on the streets of Bristol. God said to George Mueller, do something. George Mueller said, all I have is two shillings in my pocket and a rented house, God said, that's enough. So he took two orphans home, and about 165,000 orphans later, he'd educated, fed, and, and uh, transformed England um, because it was God's two showings. There was a starving choir master, an organ master, his name was J.S. Bach, maybe you heard of him. And one day he gave his organ to God. And uh, then at the top of every piece of music he ever wrote after that, he wrote these words, to the glory of God alone. Made a difference. It made a difference. So i got to ask you this question. What do you got in your hand? Because I think God wants to use it. A long time ago, about 40 years ago, my wife and I were planting some churches down in further south in Jersey than this, right outside of Atlantic City. And I was running a Bible study one night with a bunch of college kids, or college-age people, actually, and uh, we actually talked about this story. A- and uh, we started to talk about what they had in their hand and how they could use it for God. A- and some of the students really started getting excited about things that they might be able to do, things they never thought about. Uh, one worked in a child care center for employees at Resorts International Casino. And she realized that that was something she had in her hand and it helped her to make connections with people who certainly didn't go to church and didn't know Jesus. And we actually saw, well I don't know if there's any other pastors who have ever led Bible studies at Resorts International Casino, but I have. Uh, it, it resulted in a Bible study and we saw a lot of people come to Jesus. But, but there was one guy in the, in the study that night, his name was Dan. And uh, Dan left pretty depressed. He had a rough background, grew up in a very dysfunctional home, didn't finish high school, went into the Marine Corps, got married. While he was off uh, on duty someplace with the Marines, his wife ran off with somebody else. Um, He uh, ended up a not very successful stint with the Marines and and, uh, came back to to the town where we were starting this church and uh, couldn't really get a good job because He didn't have an education, hadn't finished his GED and he met Jesus, but, you know, he he just left that night and said, you know, there's nothing God can use in my life. I I can't be of any use to God. He was depressed. Five days later, I get this telephone call in the middle of the day. It's a woman who lives three streets away from where I was living and she says, will you come tell me about Jesus? No. Pastors don't really often get that kind of phone call, you know. Uh, maybe a few times in 50 years I've got a phone call like that. And so, I, you know, I, I dropped everything. <laughs> I went to tell this lady, older lady, about Jesus. Had the privilege that afternoon of, of helping her find Christ. And she gave her life to Christ. And at the end of our conversation, I said, uh, you got to tell me, why did you call me? She said, the man told me to. I said, what man? She said, the man who fixed my plumbing. I said, hey, you got to tell me this story. She said, this morning there was a knock on my door. And I answered it, and this guy's standing there, and he said, I'm a plumber, and I've come to fix your plumbing. And she said, well, I I don't understand. I didn't call a plumber. I do have an issue with my plumbing, but I didn't call a plumber because I don't have any money to pay him pay you. And he said, that's not important, show me what's wrong. So she said, I showed him the the pipes that were clogged and he spent a couple of hours and and he fixed the problem. And and when he was leaving, I tried to get my purse and and I had a few dollars, I was trying to give him something and and he wouldn't take my money. And and she said, so I said to him, why did you do this? And, And he said, I can't explain things very well, but if you call this guy, he'll come and tell you. So she called me, and I went, and I explained, and she met Jesus. And in the next two years, that happened five more times. And we built a church in that place, a thriving church full of brand new believers because one day the plumber's wrench that belonged to a man named Dan became the plumber's wrench that belonged to God so I gotta ask you this question again what do you got in your hand because God wants to use you and God wants to use it so remember that miner we started the story with the guy who was a tin miner in Cornwall and came to know Jesus. And the only two things he could do were cut stone and and, and brawl and fight. Well, one day he got the idea that uh, there was this little town in Cornwall and there was no preacher there, there was no church there, there wasn't even a church building there. And so he thought, you know, I can cut stone. So he spent the next couple of years using all of his spare time quarrying stone. And when he had enough stone, he built a very small chapel, seated about 40 people, in his little town, a town called Cross Keys. And uh, then he stood in the front of that chapel, and he talked about Jesus, until somebody came along who could do it better than him. And then he went to another place called Helston, and he did it again. And he went to another place called Gwynedd, and he did it again, four more times. And when that guy finally died, his name was Billy Bray. Uh, they said, they being, you know, the the newspapers and the authorities in England, that he was the most important Christian in Cornwall, maybe in England, because a revival from God had spread through that whole place, and. There were tons of new believers, all because one day, Billy Bray said, I haven't got much, but God, you can have it. You can have my stone-cutting tools. And he actually wrote a biography of the guy. It's hard to find today, but it's called The King's Son, the biography of Billy Bray. So, we're done but I want to leave you with this one last question. What do you got in your hand? God wants to use it. See, I don't know how exactly the next Great Awakening is gonna start in New Jersey. But I think I know how it's gonna spread. It's gonna spread When people, ordinary people, people just like you and me, say, God, what we have doesn't seem to be very significant. We don't think we're important people. We don't think we have great resources. But what we have belongs to you. And if you'll take it, we'll let you use it, and we'll let you use us. And I can't wait to see what that looks like. Father, help us. We'd all like to say the need is so great, we can't make a difference. So we'll just stand back and pray for somebody more gifted to come along. But that's hardly ever your plan. So tonight we want to say, Lord, we're not even sure what it is that we have in our hands. But whatever we find there, we're going to give it to you. And we're going to let you use it. We're going to let you use us. For the glory of God alone. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: I'm going to call a band up. Uh, We're just going to end with some time to respond to this message. Let God talk to us and us respond and praise God. Everybody should have gotten a connect card when they got in. If you didn't, you can put your hand up and the ushers will get that in your hands. Um, Frank, would you mind giving me, bringing down a pile for down here? What I want to encourage you to do while we're worshiping God, to write down on a card, thanks Dan. to write down on the connect card what's in your hand what, what is it that God might want to use just like that plumber's wrench just like the ability to quarry stone and cut stone might be an education or it might be a lack of an education Might be a positive experience, a strength, might be a weakness, might be a disability, might be something that you've experienced. I don't know. But I want to encourage you to write it down. Let God talk to you. Let God highlight something and write it down as a way of indicating, yes, God. Okay. I'm gonna- This is in my hand, but I'm putting it in your hand. I'm putting it in your hand. And then while we're singing, I want to encourage you. Go ahead, put your hand up, yeah, if you didn't get one. Frank will make sure you get one. But while we're singing, there's pens in the front of the seats in front of you. While we're singing, I want to encourage you to come down and just stick the, stick the cards on each corner of the stage here. Pastor Rigo will do something with it when he dismisses us. You can fold it up if you want. You can make it anonymous. I'm going to pray over them for the next few weeks. I promise you that. But I want to encourage you to write it down. We're going long tonight. So stick with us. Let's lean into this. I've been, like I said, I've been praying that God would speak to our church. Because God wants to use you. He wants to use you. He does. Hey, Randy. He wants to use Randy. What's up, man? <laughs> I haven't seen Randy in a long time. He comes when I'm not speaking. so let's stand if you're able and let's worship god and write something down and come and drop it off at each corner of the stage